Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games, a bit like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, a non-profit dedicated to preserving, celebrating and teaching the history of video games. In 2017, after graduating college, my guest helped curate an Atari-themed pop-up exhibition at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. Two years later, Game Informer enlisted her as a volunteer to help digitise the magazine's entire archive at its Minnesota headquarters. After five weeks of intense work, she became the Video Game History Foundation's co-director. Described by the New Yorker magazine as compact and laser-focused, since then she has sifted through thousands of old documents, discs, magazines and prototypes in an effort to rescue the video game medium's history from oblivion. Once institutions can see that putting effort and funding behind video game preservation is a useful, sustainable, in a useful, sustainable way as possible, I think they'll do it, she recently wrote. We're working on it, but the work is just beginning. Welcome, Kelsey Lewin. Thank you so much for having me. I, uh, you know, I hadn't really thought about my, uh, my career in exactly those beats, but it's 
it's all true. Like I, I did. I went to uh, the Game Informer offices with the Video Game History Foundation, and I left as the co-director. So that that is actually how that happened. <laughs> you did some really good scanning when you were over there. <laughs> impressed yeah, them. Yeah, I, I really impressed <laughs> the team. Yeah. <laughs> so I think um, you know, I, lots of people will know about the Video Game History Foundation, but I'm sure um, if some of our listeners might not. So could you just tell me what, what sort of things do you do in a typical week at your job? Oh boy. Well, I'm glad I started writing that down recently because that's it's one of those things and I'm sure this is not unique to our nonprofit, but a nonprofit in general issue is uh, you know, you wear so many hats that you kind of forget what you've done in a day. And sometimes it's not very exciting stuff like like payroll and taxes and that sort of thing, mm, but right. Our goal, I mean, we our mission statement is, you know, preserving and educating and celebrating video game history, but more practically what that means is we're trying to give people the tools to be able to actually tell these stories. So, right. um, you know, if you wanted to, for instance, write a book about a video game or uh, write an article or make a documentary or something like that, I mean, the things that you might know how to get access to are kind of begin and end at the game itself. You know, like you yeah, right. probably know where to get a ROM of Super Mario World or a physical cartridge of Super Mario World. What you might not have access to is uh, you know, stuff from the making. And, and that's a bad example because Nintendo's not very, uh, <laughs> not very leaky, unfortunately. But um, Do you mean like design documents and stuff? Or, yeah, we want um, people to be able yeah. to see both into how a game was made. So, you know, who are the people that worked on it and why did they make these decisions? And, you know, what are sort of the building blocks of, of coming to the making of that game? And then also sort of the afterlife of a game, like how it was marketed, how, what, the company wanted people to know about it versus what they actually thought about it and how they talked about it in, in magazines and in reviews and, you know, further on onto its impact on society. You know, how many people right. played it and how many people had a, a um, were impacted by it. And I mean, this podcast is a very good example of ways in which video games have uh, impacted people far beyond just, you know, Ah, oh, this was a nice thing I enjoyed, and then I set it down and moved on with my life. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mentioned in the intro that the New Yorker ran a piece on the on the foundation's work a few months ago. Maybe it was last year. I can't quite remember. But anyway, that piece starts with quite a dynamic scene of you and your co-director Frank, sort of rooting around in a box. I guess someone has called you up who worked in development and said, "Come to my house. I've got like a bunch of stuff that could be interesting." Do you do much of that, like f flying to people's homes and looking in cardboard boxes <laughs> from their attic? Yeah, I mean, if we if we had the uh, time and money for it, it could probably be the only thing we did full time. But um, oh, cool! Just because there's there's enough of them out there, you know. There's a lot of people who worked in the game industry and are only now realizing that, oh, hey, you know, this wasn't just a toy I worked on in my twenties. This actually became something that people really care about and and maybe is historically important. So yeah, we do a lot of outreach to developers. Um, we've gotten a large amount of our collection just from talking to people who worked in this industry, both currently and especially uh, a very long time ago. It kind of relies, unfortunately, on people who, I don't want to say stole from work because it wasn't necessarily <laughs> stealing at that time. It was just kind of how people worked. But, you know, it, it relies on people having kept the stuff that they worked on uh, yeah, for right, years yeah. and years and, and taking it home with them. Because at the time, you know, especially when we're talking about the 80s and 90s and stuff, there really, there's no such thing as a secondary market for this stuff. There's no such thing as 
you know, I've created this game and I know that we will be porting this and doing a remaster in, in eight years to the next console. That just that was not a thing until much later. So when uh, work wrapped up on a project, it was put in a box yeah. forever and move on to the next thing. So, yeah, we do we do a lot of working with people's just individual collections, just what they personally worked on. And then we kind of do the the other side of that, which is when people come to us and are like, hey, I'm trying to write this story or write this book. And I want to learn more about how this was created. Um, and we try to help. And we don't always have the materials for everything. I cannot give sure. you internal documents on Mario, for instance. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but there are a lot of things that we are able to help people out with. And that's, you know, that covers a lot of what we do, but we do some other, uh, I mean, you, you touched on the fact that we do some some education and advocacy, you know, we do uh, pop-up exhibits. Uh, we are now into doing some uh, copyright reform advocacy because there is a whole lot of issues with globally how video games are are handled. But uh, as we're in the U.S., we really only have the, uh, <laughs> the ability and understanding to uh, focus on the U.S. for now. So. Yeah, interesting. So tell me, what's the uh, what's your personal favorite uh, or most exciting thing that you found in a, the most exciting discovery you found on one of these trips or excursions? Oh, this is a very stupid answer, but it is it's an honest one. I got into this because I was kind of an aspiring historian or storyteller. Like I, I really wanted to learn more about how games were made and uh, share the stories behind products, especially especially kind of weird ones. I'm, I'm really into the intersection of video games and uh, strange things like, you know, the Game Boy sewing machine or the Super Nintendo Exertainment bike. So I really wanted to share these stories and was just, you know, having a heck of a time coming up with this information. Um, and so I did do um, a video about the history of the Super Nintendo Exertainment bike, a, a stationary bike that plugged into your Super Nintendo, cobbled together. My research took forever. I'd cobbled together all of these different, you know, I was going to literal libraries, looking at literal newspapers, like trying to find just bits and pieces here and just not coming up with much. But I managed to get enough of a story out. Well, when we were going through that uh, Game Informer project and going through, you know, what they had Basically, they had kept everything they'd ever been sent, all the press releases and everything. They had just yeah. sort of shoved into a room. <laughs> At least someone was. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. I know. We would be we would be lost without it. So <laughs> while I was sorting through all of this stuff and, and scanning it, I found the original press kit for the Super Nintendo Exertainment bike. And just yes. reading through it line by line, I realized like, oh, yeah, OK, that newspaper had this line. That newspaper had this line. And I had just essentially spent all this time cobbling together what was just one piece of paper you know right. like all of the different <laughs> things that were on this one piece of paper and so you were like reverse engineering a press release I, exactly <laughs> i was reverse engineering a press release and and i think you know that's one of the reasons that like people don't do a lot of video game history work is because that's how freaking hard it is in many cases yeah. so this i was so excited to find that just to have a really good visual of like Okay, I know how long this took. This took, you know, 15 hours or whatever to cobble together this one press release. And I know how useful this one piece of paper is to telling this story. So, um, you know, not a not the most exciting answer. I mean, we found, you know, we found unreleased games and all kinds of like really exciting things. Um, but for me, just as a as a someone who wanted to tell these stories, that was a moment where I was like, 
yeah, someone really needs to be doing this because no one should have to reverse engineer a press release to tell a story. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, we've uh, you you mentioned a, a minute ago about how companies really only started valuing their back catalog. I mean, quite recently, really, there weren't there weren't remasters or re-releases, even maybe much before the year two thousand, I guess. And there's all these stories of like famous games from the 90s and the 80s like the companies just having lost the code and things like that like i don't know if it's true but you know panzer dragoon saga is a classic game worth hundreds of dollars and apparently sega just lost all the code and then there's also stories in there of nintendo wanting to re-release one of its games and ending up using a rom that they got from the internet or something so now that we have i'm, I'm not gonna be i'm gonna be careful how i word this now that we uh okay now that there are internal pieces of information floating around there on the internet we know that they they have a pretty robust archive like archive um system and right, yeah, it's yeah. not it's been migrated from so many computers and stuff that it is in no in no way complete i'm sure and i, I know they're they're likely missing stuff over there but i'm gonna pro i'm gonna say that that in particular is probably pretty unlikely <laughs> okay okay well i think i think what's definitely true is that companies have not valued their history yes. and their culture well and they've I lost mean, all kinds of this stuff absolutely like that is that part is very true <laughs> but i mean why do you think that is why do you think like games aren't always treated in this way where archivists think that they should preserve them why is it taking like a you know essentially a charitable organization to to do this work yeah i mean the good news is it is starting to be taken a lot more seriously. The bad news is that it took uh, it took capitalism to start right. making that really happen. You know, um, like I'm like I said, there really just was not a an economic reason to keep this stuff sorted and available in any way, even internally for these companies for a very long time, because there just was no. There was no sense that someday they would revisit it and bring it back into the world again. You know, they didn't know that there was going to be nostalgia for these games. They didn't know that they would become classics that people would, you know, want to play or like how the technology would change over time. So there just was really no need to to do that internally and to spend money on it. And I mean, you have to remember, like in the early 90s and stuff, store like storing data was expensive. There's a reason people even reused floppy disks, which right. weren't even that expensive, but would still get overwritten and used multiple times is because storage in general was not was not a cheap thing. So I think that it just wasn't really valued for a very long time and wasn't really worth it for companies. I now know that a lot of companies, not all of them, but a pretty good amount of companies now have at least someone whose job that vaguely is. And then some companies do even better than that. EA has an entire archive team. Oh, nice. That that handles everything. You know, they, they knock on people's cubicles and go cough it up, hand it over. And, you know, we will <laughs> we will keep all of this internally. So it's much easier from our perspective, I mean, obviously, a lot of these companies aren't going to be like, and here you go. You guys can look at all of this um, publicly. But from our perspective, it is so much easier to try to cross that hurdle than to worry about, you know, it not being saved at all. So oh, yeah. at least if companies have started thinking about this, then it exists. It hasn't been lost. It exists. And we can kind of go from that, <laughs> go from there instead of from going uh, from what we're dealing with right now for the early days, which is. Does anyone have it? Does this exist? What do we have? <laughs> yeah. But that, I mean, that does bring me to something else that the foundation does sometimes is that um, companies have lost their stuff and particularly things like, 
you know, their original uh, key art or box art or something. Mm, um, right. We happen to have a halfway decent amount of that, and we've actually provided it back to companies in some cases. Can you say which game? Or are you not allowed to um, I Off the top of my head, uh, the Doom re-release, the Doom 64 re-release. Oh, right. One that I'm sure they will not be <laughs> happy with me saying, but I have not uh, signed anything, is uh, that we provided source code back to Disney for the... Uh, um, Aladdin and Lion King release. Oh right, just those minor, those minor <laughs> IPs. Yeah, <laughs> they don't like that, but they never made me sign anything. So. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. We're going to do a bit of uh, excavation ourselves now. So I've asked you to pick the five video games that you want to put on your perfect fictional console. Um, your first one is from two thousand and one. So tell us about this game. What is it, and and why do you love it? Oh, uh, so the first game is Pokemon Crystal, which was um, not my first game or my first Pokemon game even, but I think it was kind of the game that solidified um, I was going to be playing video games for the rest of my life. And, and also the first game where I could play as a girl that at least in my obviously not the first game ever where you played as a girl but it was the first one that I had ever picked up where you play where <laughs> you at least can play as a girl so was it the first Pokemon to do that it was yeah so I was I was at the exact right age to be full-fledged Pokemania and you know it came out when I was uh, a young kid about about five years old I think the uh, red and blue in the United States. Um, yes. And I got a a Game Boy Color for Christmas. Uh, we had already had a Game Boy in the house that was technically my dad's, but, you know, he occasionally picked up a game of baseball and that's about it. But this was, you know, my, my very first console and really kind of fell in love with the world of Pokemon and the just the creatures and the... I really liked to draw as a kid, so it gave me, like, just to... 151 things to draw um, and then when when Pokemon Crystal came out it you know it expanded expanded that a lot further and also made me really feel like oh hey like I can not that the protagonist looks anything like me but you know there was some level of like I'm being represented here and um, this right, is right. my adventure with my weird little creatures that I'm gonna draw in my notebook and um, instead of paying attention in math class oh nice that's so good <laughs> So did you did you rename your characters uh, as uh, Kelsey? Yes. Yeah. What was the default? Because it's Ash, I guess, well, in the Western version at least for the guy. What is it for the girl? It's uh, it's Chris, I believe, short for Crystal. Um, oh, like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're both very. The boy and the girl are both Chris, but it's like right C H R I S for you know a male Chris, and then K R I S for a oh I see for the female Chris. <laughs> Uh, a loop, a loophole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, which was your favorite uh, Pokemon to draw then? Ooh, that is a, a great question. Um, well, I'm I've always <laughs> been very into birds, um, so I think I drew a lot of bird Pokemon. Um, and there's there's a, a bird Pokemon in in the Gold Silver Crystal series of games called Hoot Hoot, which is a very circular owl, and that's nice. Uh, a very, it's like, you know, three circles, two for the eyes and one for the body, and you basically got okay. it. So that was that's a good one to <laughs> to just kind of bang out real quick. <laughs> Do some practicing on. Uh -huh. Excellent. 
So did you uh, did you grow up in Seattle? Is that right? Or no, um, I've been in in Seattle, Washington for a um, little over a decade now. But I actually moved around a lot growing up, which made um, something like a Game Boy a very very good console for me. We did a lot of uh-huh. a lot of road trips and a lot of moving. I believe I lived in Detroit, Michigan when uh, Pokemon Crystal came out. But I had I had moved from uh, Baltimore to Chicago to Detroit all couple what you know moving every couple of years when i was when i was younger and then and then lived in uh dallas texas for about a decade um after that before i moved here so um i've i've been i've bounced around the u.s a little bit yeah you've seen all the bits yeah but finally settled (laughs) down and yeah i mean as a as a kid at least it was um you know i i think there was definitely something to just kind of the first game to really capture my imagination being something that I could really escape into and had um, a lot of a lot of creatures and a lot of just um, Game Boy RPGs, as you can imagine, like not they're not very detailed. But as a kid, I think that's almost better. You know, you end up filling in a lot more detail with your head. Right. So right. It's a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was I a guess very. If you're, if you're moving around a lot as well, like having a little world that's consistent can be quite comforting as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's how. That's definitely right, how right. I felt. So, how come you were moving around? Can you say? Um, yeah, my my dad worked in the sports industry, and he was uh, just changing around locations for a while until he settled in. Yeah, yeah. Did you find that uh, hard then trying to fit in at all these new schools and things like that? Yeah, it was, and um, I think the the next game we're going to talk about, I uh, I I have even more feelings about how that relates, I think. But um, yeah, definitely had had a heck of a time, especially with my move to to Texas, which was very different than all of the sort of like East Coast and Midwest places I had lived before then and um, realized for the first time when I moved there that other people don't move. Like that was the first time, you know, I started asking my classmates like, oh, where are you from? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm I've always lived here and I always will. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I like asking a 10 year old, where are you from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. I thought everyone moved every few years. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course. Okay. Well, I mean, it seems like a good time then to come to your second game. Tell us about this and, and why was it helpful, I guess, when you when you get to Texas and all that? Yeah. So um, my second game and, and probably the most important game in my whole life is is Animal Crossing. You know, I started with the first one on the, the first one that came out here, I should say, um, on the GameCube. And I didn't get it like exactly early. So I got it a little bit later, but it was around the time I had I had moved to Texas. And, you know, just having this literal, like very literal space that uh, was very consistent. Because I mean, Pokemon, it is it is its own world, but it's not like a town that you live in with a house and everything. Animal Crossing is literally like, I have my own house. These are my neighbors. I don't move. I stay here. And so having having that, I think, was really 
I don't know, very grounding for me. Um, but also provided me like a really good social space, which sounds uh, kind of weird um, to say, because obviously the animals are not real and they're not, you know, they're not literally responding to you. But there's there's mechanics in that game where you can write letters to your neighbors, you can post messages up on a bulletin board. And all of these things are they're meant to be sort of like a, a communication practice. And in, in some ways, they're they're meant to be for when you're playing with other people. <laughs> but um, I didn't really have you know, I had I had a, a younger sibling, but who played a little bit, but mostly I was playing this on on my own, and so I just I just sort of treated it like a like a role playing game a little bit, you know, like a yeah right, like a more literal. Uh, when I say role playing, I don't mean you know like a video game RPG, but like a right literal, um, you know, like a live action role play or yeah, something. Yeah. So you know, writing to these animals like they're my actual friends and kind yeah. of creating this uh, this storied world for it the game does encourage you to do that doesn't it because you can you can literally type in can't you a letter to yeah. you know like the little cow that lives around the corner or whatever and then they will write back and maybe send you a hat or something right right yeah and you know they don't they're not smart enough yet to uh at this point to like completely understand you know what you wrote and respond to it literally but but they do respond and they say something vague but engaging enough that you know it feels like a real conversation and yeah it was just it was a game that i thought was really i thought was really really interesting at the time but then as i got older really appreciated it even more and i've actually it's not out yet it'll be out later this year but i've actually written an entire book about animal crossing oh um, nice for for boss fight books um so oh, this wonderful. is a very very big game in my life that aside from just being something that I loved when I was little, kind of grew with me through the rest of my life. And it was the first online community I was ever a part of. I became a, a moderator on a on an Animal Crossing forum site called Nook Bay. Right. It was it was eBay, but uh for Animal Crossing. This was more around <laughs> the uh Wild World, which is the Nintendo DS yes. game time. Yeah, I remember. But um but yeah, I was I was uh, very very active in that community. It was kind of what shaped my you know one of the things that shaped my early internet community exposure and stuff, and and just really um, you know stuck with me for uh, for the rest of my life in the way that you know made me want to write an entire book about this game. Yeah, amazing. So you were playing this on the it was the GameCube version, I assume. Yes. Yeah. Because am I right in thinking it came out on Nintendo sixty four, like a, in it, Japan or? It did, and yeah, the the first Animal Crossing is has a really interesting development history, which uh, you know it started out was meant to be on the Nintendo sixty four disc drive, a you know ill fated uh, add on system for the Nintendo sixty four, and um, Nintendo started you know seeing the writing on the walls and started telling everyone who is developing games for that system that they needed to bring it back to cartridge or the, the project wasn't going to work out. So, you know, the original game really bears almost no resemblance to what actually shipped on the Nintendo 64. It was meant to be, you know, a lot more of a traditional game, had like dungeon crawling elements and stuff. No way. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then as, um, as the capabilities that they were afforded by being on the uh, 64DD were, you know, were cut. They just kind of went back to the drawing board and they're like, well, really the point of this game is communication. What should we be doing in a game that's about communication? So the original version came out in Japan only on the Nintendo 64, very late in the Nintendo 64's life cycle. I mean, the GameCube was already being 
shown around at, uh, at various events and stuff. I mean, everyone knew it was coming. Um, and so when that game started actually doing like fairly well in Japan, like they were, you know, they did, didn't really know what to expect since it's sort of a, a weird game. But when it started doing really well, you know, that sort of changed their plans for it. So they'd already been working on porting it to the GameCube and maybe, you know, making a few little quality of life uh, inclusions and a few little new bonus things. Um, but uh, then they also started kind of rethinking bringing it uh, outside of Japan. And so, you know, it ended up being a pretty big hit yeah. outside of Japan as well. And then they actually translated that version back into Japanese with even more additions uh, and put that out in Japan again. So all told, the, you know, original version of you know, when you say the original Animal Crossing, yeah. you have a Nintendo 64 version, you have two GameCube versions in Japan, you have a GameCube version in the US, which is distinct in a lot of localization ways, and then the European version is uh, is slightly distinct as well. So you have like five plus versions of this game <laughs> that are all essentially the same game. It's um, it's really, it's pretty interesting. That's amazing. You are definitely doing the right job. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's great. Um, oh, well, um, everyone should look out for your book on Animal Crossing then later this year. That sounds great. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So, yeah, I mean, tell me, were you into, obviously you're like, obviously a person who likes to hoard all this information and gather it and all of that that's obviously a natural instinct that you have were you also into like collecting stuff when you were a kid you know i i don't think i was consciously collecting until i was much older i would say that i didn't like to throw things out when i when i was a kid and i was a bit of a mess but i don't think i started thinking about things in terms of um an actual collection until until I was a little older, probably around like high school or college when I started uh, kind of seeing how other people were engaging with this idea of collecting. And I was like, oh, I don't, you know, it doesn't have to just be a pile of stuff. I can have, uh, you know, purpose and intent behind these things right. and, and feel good about it instead of uh, embarrassed about it. <laughs> <laughs> so what was, the, what was the thing that you focused on for your initial collection? I think the very first thing I collected when it, you know, once it became a conscious decision 
and this is a very silly one, but I wanted to get every color of uh, Nintendo 64 because they came out in all those <laughs> yes. this beautiful, fantastic, um, that was Nintendo's word for it, <laughs> colors, um, you know, just a rainbow. Like see-through, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. Very, very like yeah. millennial or, or millennium. You know that that see through stuff that you saw on the IMAX and stuff too. Yes, so I yeah, got yeah, yeah. I got yeah. every single one of those, and I actually just recently started Did selling you? some of them because I was like, you know, I don't think I actually do need eight Nintendo sixty fours <laughs> now that I think about it. Uh, so I that's I'm, an expensive first collection as well. Yeah, like, well, I mean, <laughs> I had I had other things, but like you need a goal, right? And I was like, that's going to be my first right. goal. Nowadays, I'm not adding that much to my collection anymore. My really big project, which I finished probably like a year and a half, maybe two, maybe even longer than that ago, was a complete Wonderswan set, uh, Bandai Wonderswan. Oh, nice. So I have every yeah. single Wonderswan game, and that took a very, very long time. How many games are in that library? Um, it is, I should know this off the top of my head, it's around like 215-ish. Okay, so doable, definitely. It's yeah. It's doable, and it depends on, you know, what constitutes a complete collection for each person, so... Um, there's there's a couple very expensive ones, but then there's also a couple that I think I think it's okay to skip and still call it a complete collection. But that I um, yeah. that I managed to get like there is um, uh, this is going to sound so fake, and I promise this is real. Uh, there is a pregnancy tracking uh, device for the Wonder Swan. Okay, uh, it's called Mama Mite, and it is a <laughs> how does that work? <laughs> so it is a <laughs> it's a Wonder Swan and cartridge with an infrared sensor and comes with an infrared scale and you stand on your <laughs> scale and you report like, you know, this is my weight um, as I go along and it's like, okay, you're you're in your third week okay. or whatever and these are the exercises you should be doing. This is what you should be eating and it's just a nice little like logging thing for your pregnancy. Um, as you can probably imagine, not exactly a hot seller. It took me... <laughs> <laughs> took me, I think, five years to find a single one for sale. So, cool. um, did it come with the scale? Did it come with the scales as well? Yeah. Then, or was it something that you? It did yeah. the whole set. Yeah, right. it's a very, it's a very strange little piece of hardware. So, there's a couple things like that where it's like, you know, there's probably like 50 of these in the whole world. I don't think yeah. it's reasonable to say that you need that <sighs> if you want to uh, go for the full set. But, but I'm. Oh, that's so. That's cool. the kind of what? stuff that I think is really fascinating. Is that sort of that intersection between yeah. video games and like real world applications. So um, yeah. that was something I was really, really interested in. Yeah, the sort of esoteric peripheral. Yeah. So uh, it seems you're attracted to those. I so. think they're fun. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's very interesting when, um, you know, when businesses have in the past been like, this is a way we can, you know, market this product to people or get this product into more hands. In some cases, it's just this video game is a very cheap computer. You know, like the yeah, the Game right, Boy right, is a yeah. very cheap computer, uh, and in other cases, it's um, maybe this will make kids into this thing, or this will, you know, maybe this will will get yeah, our, yeah, our yeah. target audience more interested <laughs> in this. So. I remember uh, one of the first pieces I ever wrote as a journalist was um, interviewing someone who tried to collect a complete Neo Geo Pocket collection, yeah. and I think he had he had all of them, but this was like a while ago, and now that would just be so expensive, yeah. I think, to to try and do everything. Yeah. I'm lucky that I started this collection when I did. I mean, there were, uh, I, I, you know what? Like, I, I don't mind sharing this. Uh, Mama Mite cost me over three thousand dollars. <laughs> it was, it was an incredibly, you know, that was that was my purchase for the year. Cool. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I started when 
the very least, a lot of these games were, um, if you ordered them in bulk, you could get them for a few bucks a piece. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you mind saying how you tracked it down? Did you find it on like Yahoo Japan? Yeah. So, or something? Like, almost the entire collection came from Yahoo Auctions, which, yeah, right. is it's the eBay of Japan, essentially. So, yeah. And, you know, just a lot of saved searches and also having friends who knew that I was on the lookout for some of this stuff. I did, <laughs> uh, I bought a couple of games from another Wonderswan collector who was kind of liquidating some stuff. Yeah, I think I might have gotten almost the entire collection just from uh, from Yahoo Auctions. Oh my gosh, I love it. I could talk to you all day about collecting video games, so we best not do that. But <laughs> we should come to your third game now then, which is from 2006, an arcade game, so a little little different. Tell us about tell us about this one and why it means so much Yeah, to you. so this is Dance Dance Revolution Supernova. Dance, dance, revolution! Uh, which is a, um, you know, one of Konami's many, many rhythm games. And I am a huge enjoyer of rhythm games, but I don't want to say, you know, the rhythm game community is like this very hardcore thing that I was only, I would only really consider myself to have been a part of in this exact era of, uh, of DDR Supernova. I was in middle school, I believe, was when this game came out. I was probably like 13 years old. Me and two friends were just, we decided we were going to get really good at this game um, and that we would be like these three girls who would show up and, you know, totally kick some ass. Like that was, oh, that was, so cool. I think, yeah, I think that was really just where it came from was, you know, we all, we all kind of like enjoyed rhythm games, but we were like, man, what if we just like pick a game and we just... Like, let's just go kick some butt. So um, I was not the best one of the three of us. That was uh, my friend Shannon, who was much, much uh, more talented than my other friend and I. But You were her backing dancers. Yeah, exactly. We <laughs> we went to the mall um, just about every weekend. Um, there was a, a Gameworks there that is uh, no longer there, unfortunately, in that mall. Rest in peace. But we would go every weekend and we would just spend a bunch of time on this machine and uh, and we had PlayStation 2s at home so we would we Good would practice, play yeah. um you know yeah we'd practice at home we should, we should say just very quickly for any listener who doesn't know this is dance dance revolution so you have a foot pad and then on the screen little arrows come down directional arrows and you you step in time with the music yes. either forward backwards left or right yes it's a very <laughs> um it's a game that if you are playing on the higher levels is a enormous workout <laughs> like it is yes. just we were we were sweaty and gross at the end of every mall session um, and every time we practice and stuff because it is it is just a very you know you're you're kind of sprinting once you get up to the higher levels of this and I am embarrassed to say that although I think I can still read the notes fast enough my legs do not move fast <laughs> enough anymore I literally. I, Every once in a while, I want to like show off and go to the arcade and be like, "Oh, there's a DDR machine here. Let me, you know, pick one of the the songs I used to be really good at." And I usually get about halfway through, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> "Yeah, they, the the machine has like a bar that you can lean on, doesn't it? If it gets too much, and you can just sort of put your weight on the bar and just let your legs yeah, fling around like you're doing a river dance or something." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for some <laughs> of the songs, you almost have to because just. Your legs are just moving so fast that your your body is going to start throwing itself off of the arcade machine if you're not like using something to stabilize yourself. But I do remember that at 13 years old, we all um, decided that it was very uncool to use the bar that made it right. look like you were 
you know, you need help to <laughs> get through these songs. So we tried really hard not to use the bar. Right, uh, yeah. But nowadays I'm like, no, that's what it's for. Why, why would they put it there if you weren't supposed to use it? I guess if like the goal of your little trio is to like look a mate, turn up at the arcade and all the other kids go, oh my gosh, the girls are here. Like I'm about to do their DDR. You can't be leaning on the bar. You've got to be, exactly. be hands free. Exactly. And yeah, we absolutely did. Um, I, I think we, we accomplished what we set out to do, which was, you know, it's not like this was a crazy busy arcade or anything, but, you know, if, if there's enough people around, they would often gather around for a couple of minutes to watch a 13 year old girl tear it up on the DDR <laughs> machine. So. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Arcades, are, are that sort of public expressions of public play it reminds me you know like how all around the world these days they put pianos in public places and allow people to perform and i've always thought that's a bit like ddr in particular but arcade machines where you know it's sort of public performance of play totally almost it's um yeah yeah i I mean i know there there was technically like a guitar hero arcade machine and stuff but i Um, always thought you know had that had that been just a little bit earlier had that been more around like the the time when and i even think you know Dance Dance Revolution Supernova was probably towards the like, it's not like the end of of DDR, but uh, it's definitely not at its absolute peak, no, I would right. say, at yeah. that time. Um, so maybe, you know, a little bit more closer to that other rhythm game boom, I think would have been another really cool public show off kind of thing, um, which, you know, it, it ended up being at like parties <laughs> yeah. and stuff, but not, not so much yeah, in arcades. Yeah. Now, t- tell me, you end up, I guess this is right after you graduate college, you you end up co-owning a video game store. How, tell me how that came about. Yeah, so uh, when I moved here to Seattle, I basically immediately started working at the, a game store called Pink Gorilla Games. Um, there were a couple of locations in Seattle. and Is it a retro store? It, it's a, yeah, mostly retro, but I mean, we do modern stuff and um, a lot of import games and stuff as well. Uh-huh. It had been around since 2005. Um, I joined in 2012, so it had been around for a few years at that point. And I just got really, really into it. Like, I I cared very deeply about this community. You know, I was starting to collect video games and just become a part of that community and just realizing that, like, Seattle is a really good place for it. It's a very, you know, a lot of video game companies are are there. Uh, We've got we've got Nintendo, we've got Microsoft, we've got you know all kinds of (laughs) all kinds of stuff here. Just the little ones. Yeah, just the little (laughs) ones. Um, And you know, I just thought this is a really great place for this, and and became really into it. So I became a manager there pretty quickly while I was still attending college, Um, and then myself and one of the other managers uh, we were dating at the time basically ended up buying the business from the previous owner because he he was just kind of losing uh-huh. interest in it. He was just, he's a lawyer. He has other <laughs> other <laughs> right. things to do. Um, and this was probably not making as much money as the, the lawyer job was making. So um, he, you know, agreed to sell it to us. And um, and really, I credit my, my business partner with uh, with really being into the idea of like, no, we should we should really be the ones to take it over. We are the ones who are going to like kind of grow it and and bring it to its full potential. And I think he was totally right. And it's been it's been like seven years now since we took it over, and we've got three locations now. Um, and amazing, you know, I never growing up, I was never like I'm going to be a business owner. But in hindsight, 
I always had a side hustle. Like I always was, yeah. you know, going back to <laughs> second grade, I was, you know, charging people a quarter to draw something for them or, you know, right. something like that. You're so running I've, Nook Bay as well, exactly, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. So I've always, I've always had a, a side hustle and I, I just never thought I would, um, you know, be in a, a sort of ownership position, but I would not trade it for the world. It's, it's hard work, but it is, it's very meaningful to be able to, to really own what you do yeah to to be like yes this is i i made this decision and i i created this so that's so good i think you know some people might wonder i suppose with the rise of like ebay and we talked about yahoo auctions and things like that you know the the idea of a physical vintage game store it can seem like maybe that's going to be a hard hard sort of um, avenue to take why why do people bring their stuff to you to like sell it to you and buy it from you rather than just doing it online. Yeah, I mean, that part I actually feel is not so bad. Um, I mean, eBay and these other places are, they, they require work. I mean, the, the thing that a business takes away from from people is that, you know, any amount of uh, like work or effort that goes into it, you can just drop off a box. You don't have to test it. You don't have to clean it. And, you know, we will, we will make you a very fair offer. Um, eBay has been... I'm almost thankful for how bad eBay has gotten because they're now taking something like 20% just right off the top. And um, it's a very, very like, you know, side with the buyers 100% of the time kind of climate out there. So already, even if you are getting top dollar for your purchases on eBay, you're actually only getting 80% of that. And then you have some risk and your shipping costs and all, you know, all of that stuff. So it's, I think eBay used to be friendlier to sellers and and tends to not be so much anymore, which is um, is helpful for us. But uh, beyond that, I mean, I think people also just really like the idea of having a space around that is like for them and for people like them and um, and is uh. convenient. I mean, we we think about online shopping as convenient, and it is in a lot of ways. But so is like walking down the street and just getting something and not having to wait for it or, or you know worry about package theft or anything like that so yeah you know i i know i'm extremely biased but i'm a very big fan of physical stores i don't do a lot of online buying in general even if i'm going to a big box store or major corporation i just really like holding it in my hands and getting it the exact moment that i want it so yeah you can check it you can see the yeah you know open it up and all of that stuff it's lovely isn't it yeah Yeah, and i think that's a, a major reason especially for um you know, for people to come to us rather than uh, necessarily sell stuff to us. But, you know, if you order something off of eBay and it doesn't work, your your recourse is, you know, you have recourse, but it requires opening a claim and printing a shipping label and packaging something back up and shipping it. And, you know, and, and you don't have, in the meantime, you don't have your game. Whereas for us, you know, bring it in and we will either fix it or get you a new one, you know, it's a... It's a much smoother process, I think. So, yeah, people definitely like to be able to kind of see condition and know that they're going somewhere that um, that they can trust. And also just, I mean, I have a lot of really awesome employees who are very good at helping people when they when they come in and they're just like, ah, I think I want a Game Boy, but, you know, I don't know much about the system. What, <laughs> you know, what do I need to know about this? What games should I play? So yeah, yeah. I'm very lucky to have a, like, passionate staff. Wonderful. Okay. Well, anyone in the Seattle area, you know where to go this weekend. 
<laughs> okay, why don't we come to your your fourth game then, which is from 2010. Tell us about this 2010. One. This is uh, Xenoblade Chronicles, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So I am a huge RPG person, um, and you know I didn't realize Pokemon was an RPG until I was much older. But started playing RPGs, quote unquote, serious ones when I was probably around like eleven or twelve years old. And um, what was your first one? Ooh, um, I think because I mean Pokemon is the technically correct answer, but I think I think I think it was Final Fantasy Nine. Oh, nice, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Some people get cross when you call Pokemon an RPG, don't they? I've had that before. Yeah. I mean, it it, it literally oh, is, I agree. but I, I, agree. I get yeah. it. It's not a serious <laughs> <Yeah>. one. <laughs> um, and so I, I never finished Final Fantasy IX. I think the first RPG I finished was probably Final Fantasy X. But Xenoblade for me, I think, came at a time when I... I hadn't been playing a lot of RPGs lately. Um, I had sort of just just fallen off of the genre a little bit and uh, just wasn't keeping up with it. And it's just, it, it's a game that I got absolutely just completely absorbed in. Um, I put over well over 100 hours into it. It's one of those games where I, I think it's a very intimidating game for, especially for people who don't play a lot of RPGs, because it is just one of those where you can get lost in the absolute endless yes. side quests and, and, and side content and stuff. And it has... The, the battle system goes a lot deeper than it sort of uh, shares with you or, or teaches you. And so it's one of those things that you can you can get really into or you can just kind of learn the basics and you might have to grind a little bit, but you'll get through the game. And this was always one of my favorite RPGs like since I played it, which was probably more like 2012 or 2013. But I, I really, really appreciate it now having just finished uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 3 and in the middle of playing the DLC for Xenoblade Chronicles 3, you know, I've now played through this entire series and just recognizing that all of the threads were like this was a fully realized uh, trilogy from the very beginning right, right. that has taken almost 15 years to do but uh i'm just always very impressed when um when i'm like oh my god i haven't thought about that thing in 12 years but like that they just connected to that line that has been uh those you know those dots have been set up for 12 years now and they just finally connected <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um just very very impressed by the the level of of storytelling in this game and i I want to, I would love to recommend it to more people, but I I have to be honest, I mean, you are looking at, between all of the DLC and everything, and yes, you should play the DLC, um, <laughs> like 300 hours of content, so. Yeah, yeah, a big, big game, yeah. 
Yeah, it was when it, when the first one came out, it really revitalized that genre, didn't it? Because it had got quite stale, I think it's fair to say. And then yeah, Xenoblade came along and it just felt so fresh and exciting and it the the world was really bright and it takes place on these um you're like a little band of adventurers, aren't you? But the the world itself is constructed from these stone giants that are literally so big that you know, you can be running along its arm and it looks yeah. like it's a giant sort of enormous field that you're running across or whatever. And uh, yeah. so cre- so creative and interesting. Yeah, the, the world in the world building in that game is just incredible. I mean, yeah, like you said, the the earth you exist upon is uh, on two giants that are sort of locked in this eternal fight. Um, and especially for me, I mean, the, the games I had been playing for the most part um, up until Xenoblade was you know, a lot of Final Fantasies and stuff, but then a lot of the Tales games, which I love. I love the Tales series, but they're very, very anime. They're very, like, you have to kind of like that sort of style and know that there's going to be some of that, like, humor and entropiness to it, which I think turns some people off and maybe kind of takes them out of the story. And, you know, Xenoblade has trended back towards the anime a little bit. Um, yeah, But more for recently. that first one, especially, I was just really, really excited by the art style and by sort of the vastness of the world and how it just felt very different than a lot of the more anime stuff I had been playing. It, it took itself very seriously and it, it didn't fall into a bunch of anime tropes. Um, it did in Xenoblade Chronicles 2, but <laughs> we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, you know, even regardless of that, just the, the continuity between all the games is is incredible because it's, um, I think my favorite part about this, and some people might hate this, but like it is not obvious that you're playing one giant continuous story until I would say like the end of Xenoblade Chronicles 2. So you've put maybe 200 hours into a story before you even realize that like this whole thing is actually related. Right, yeah. And then, you know, towards the end of 3, you're like, ah, okay, yeah, this yeah. is how it actually all goes together. Yeah. That's definitely going to put some people off, but but the um, mm-hmm. yeah t- uh. yeah I'm I know I'm not going to convince a lot of people, but um, but boy is it good if you want a good story. It is good, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That uh, the director's um, Tetsuya Takahashi, isn't it? Who I think was he was quite junior at Square at Square Enix as it as it was uh, SquareSoft as it was like in the nineties, working on uh, with Sakaguchi, the Final Fantasy creator and stuff. So I guess that's. And those games aren't really, you know, they're Japanese, but they're not really anime type games, are they? So that's maybe where why his stuff yeah. has always been. But he's always like had extremely large ambitions, hasn't he? Like the games he made. Yeah, I mean, I I forget what he said the original idea behind Xeno Gears was, which was that, that PlayStation One, you know, the first kind of Xeno uh yes. game. We run out of money halfway through, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um but I believe he said that one he wanted that one to be like a, a five or six or even seven part story that, you know, he did one of and then um the Xeno Saga games on PlayStation Two was also yes. cut short before yeah. the entire vision was realized. So um just Kind of being able to wrap up one entire vision of his is um, is really cool. I'm just I'm very happy that he was given the chance to do that because it's yeah it's, it's impressive. Yeah, it's definitely a story with a happy ending because yeah, like you say, he was working on those uh, those games and got cut short, and then he had another chance and really really pulled it off with this these three this trilogy. Okay, let's um, why don't we talk about tell me how you first like 
heard about the Video Game History Foundation and um, and got involved with them because it hasn't been going for that long, has it? Just yeah, a few it, years at it the moment. started in 2017, um, technically 2016 maybe, but it wasn't really like public until, you know, publicly announced until 2017. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, as I talked about before, I was somewhat of a like aspiring historian, storyteller type. And this was right around the time I was getting really frustrated with how difficult my research was. So, you know, I'd been bashing my head against the wall trying to find information about some of these things I was covering. And then I saw the Video Game History Foundation and kind of read about their mission, which really was, you know, at its inception, it hasn't changed much, but I think it's definitely become more more polished and focused. But at its inception was especially just like, look, these materials need to be out there for people because the research is really hard right now. And I was like, yes, the research is really hard right now. You get me. You know, as a, as a frustrated historian, I was just like, this is it. Like someone, someone gets it. And to be quite honest, I basically just started bugging uh, Frank Cifaldi, the, the founder, until he started noticing me. So I had just recently graduated, I believe just recently graduated college um, and I had a degree in, in communications and business, and I was, uh, you know, I I was kind of getting ready to buy Pink Gorilla at the time. I'm trying to think of my timing here, or maybe I already owned it. But I think my point was I wasn't like sold on the idea that like I'm going to be a business owner forever. Like I am, this is the only thing I'm ever going to do. But I was like, but I'm going to probably be able to dedicate some time to uh you know, I don't I don't have a, a boss anymore. So like I can dedicate some time to things that I really care about. I basically was just like, let me do, you know, let me put together like a communication strategy package for you. Let me like do your PR or something like that. And I totally understand why Frank was just like, I don't know who you are, but thank you. <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, I just kind of I whipped something up and delivered it. And I was like, you don't have to use this. I just I'm just really into this and I really like what you're doing. And um, please let me know if I can help. And I think eventually I just kind of started showing up so much that he was like, oh, she's serious. Like yeah. she really wants to <laughs> to be a part of this and she's she's putting in some work. So, um, yeah, the first thing that we did um, that I did kind of together with the foundation was that very first pop up exhibit at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, as you as you mentioned at the beginning. And yeah, I think uh, from there it was just it, it became a like, you know, I, I became the, the first full time, not full time, but. The first very dedicated, I'm always here, volunteer for the foundation. And really just out of a, like, I need this to work because I need this in the world. So please just, you know, I'll, I'll put whatever effort I need to into this so that I, my research is easier in the future and the research is easier for other people in the future. Yeah. And of course, you know, the irony of that is that I have very little time to actually do research <laughs> now. <Yeah. laughs> but <laughs> someday. Someday, yeah. One, one thing I wanted to ask, so I know that the... Foundation does sometimes acquire, like you mentioned, um, prototypes or unreleased games and things like that. And sometimes those come via donations, but sometimes they're literally like you'll see it on eBay and you'll be competing against collectors or whatever to try and get it. And, you know, since the pandemic, the the vintage and retro game market has seems to have increased in a lot of value and people are spending a lot more money to get stuff. So 
how do you go about like getting hold of a rare Nintendo prototype or something when you're bidding against people with very deep pockets? We try to be strategic about that because we are, you know, we're a nonprofit. We don't have a ton of money and uh, most of our money does come from just individual donors. You know, we don't have um, like a big government backing or a big, uh, you know, we don't have a a wealthy benefactor funding the entire operation. So we, we try to be strategic about it. We have fundraised specifically for things like that before um, where, you know, we'll just kind of get pledges from people and be like, if, you know, if this is extremely important to you that we get this, then, you know, uh, just let me know how much you will be willing to spend, you know, if we if and when we get it. So, you know, we'll, we'll take the take the money afterwards kind of thing. Um, but actually, we've had a pretty good amount of success in just kind of negotiating with some of these deep pocketed people. You know, we had a, a situation recently where uh, someone purchased, uh, you know, someone kind of outbid us. But then we were like, hey, if you know, if we pay you, you know, X amount of dollars, like, would you allow us to digitize this and preserve it and, and release it and stuff? And we, we've had some success with that. I mean, that kind of it comes down to individual buyers and stuff but you know we're we are mostly concerned with just making sure that that this stuff is is safe and accessible but we also do want to be smart about it because if it starts getting to a point where um you know someone wants fifteen thousand dollars for something that is very very like two weeks from final like no major differences kind of thing like that's that's just not worth it to us. There's so much more we can do with that fifteen thousand dollars. There's so many more, so much more we can uh, save and provide to people. So I think you know it really depends on how much we value the object itself, um, and we try to <laughs> we try to balance it. How much is this actually going to help people? There was a a big story in the news, and it was like on all the news channels, like over here in the UK, about the sale of. That copy of Super Mario 64, a sealed copy that went for like $1.5 yeah. million, I don't know, 18 months ago or whatever. I mean, I know that's that particular game has got a whole other controversy around it. But do you think in general that prices are going to continue rising or is it overvalued at the moment? I think they've already started to fall, especially in that sealed collectibles uh, market. It's something I like to kind of uh, try to tell pe or share with people so that you know you don't get too freaked out by this stuff is there really are two parallel markets happening right now there is the sort of like video game collecting the standard classic video game collecting that's been happening you know since the the late 90s really which is you know people collecting by and large not sealed versions of games just you know either loose or maybe in their box or something maybe you want a really nice copy but in general not sealed stuff uh and people who tend to value the rarity of the actual you know did this game sell 2000 units or did it sell a million units so <laughs> yeah then you have the other track which is really people that come out of the other collectibles worlds you know it's um people who were in sports cards and movie memorabilia and comic books and that sort of thing and they they approach game collecting very very differently you know they tend to do things like like the way comic books work, like first appearance of right. and, you know, being really valuable, even if that thing has three million of them or first print of of Mario, even though really it's the Japanese one that's the first print of Mario. But, you know, there's a little bit of I don't want to say xenophobia, but like there's there's definitely a little bit of like right. Americanization and, okay, yeah. and that sort of thing of uh, um, of that market. So, they, you know, that market obviously 
both markets took off in a big way in the pandemic, but that market especially, I feel like really skyrocketed. I mean, yeah, Super Mario 64, even in incredible conditions, selling for that much money is, um, it's not going to happen again for a really long time. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we've already seen a pretty major drop in that market. Um, there was a real gold rush for a while that is just just not there anymore. Heritage Auctions, which is one of the big collectibles sites is still running video game auctions you know every month or so and uh the stuff's just not it's just not going for the the meteoric prices that it that it was before and i would say the regular collectible uh you know game collecting market is cooling off a little bit too you know maybe partially in economy based i think all of this stuff does better and and uh gets bigger in a booming economy but um it ebbs and flows i think it will you know go up again someday but i think we're we're not in a period of like hyper growth right now no. thankfully yeah yeah sounds good <laughs> uh maybe maybe a time to get you another copy of the wonder swan pregnancy game then <laughs> <laughs> if i can find one I can find, but see yeah. no one cares about that that's not something right. that you know would ever sell at a <laughs> um you know if i put that up at an auction site i'm sure it would go for like 200 bucks because sure, people yeah, would be yeah. like what is that <laughs> right right okay kelsey we better come to your fifth and your final game um, which is from 2014. Tell us about this so one. So this is uh, Monster Hunter uh, 4 Ultimate. which is kind of a random one in the middle of the Monster Hunter series, but it's the first one that, not the first one I played, but the first one that like really became a big part of my life. You said it was 2014? Apparently. I looked it up okay, beforehand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my, my perception of everything from like 2014 to 2018 is very bad. So this was a game that we we started holding a lot of events at, at Pink Gorilla um, for like meetups for this game because really just because myself and you know my, my business partner were like really into it at the time we were we were still managers at this point I don't think uh yeah we we hadn't quite come to owning the place yet but you know we had a lot of capability to do stuff like that to run these events and it just became a really big part of my of my social life in a way that I think is kind of it was kind of rare in 2014 mm. you know like in this modern era there's not a lot of um you know, people aren't doing land parties anymore. People aren't really doing these sort of um, everyone come together and play games in the same space so much anymore. So it was just a really exciting thing to to capture that again. So every every week we had a meetup at the store after hours, and we'd have you know pizza and and print out spreadsheets <laughs> for the game because. All of the quality of life stuff that they've added since was not in it yet. So right. you know, you had to remember like. Okay, if you're doing this fight, this is uh, if you're trying to build this sword, this is what you need to fight, and don't forget to bring this item and, and this item, or you will die. Uh, so yeah, so we should briefly explain. So in this game, you you people are literally joining up together to go and hunt 
dinosaurs essentially aren't they and then they yes. take the dinosaurs apart <laughs> it is and... monster hunter the most uh <laughs> aptly named game in the whole yeah. world probably yeah. says what it does on the tip <laughs> but then the bit you're referring to is that you use like the horn of the rhino to make a shield or right whatever. yeah so it, it's a um, game you, ha- you have to find the ingredients yes you? so it's a game that just kind of that, that keeps building on itself i mean you can you can play it single player but it's often often played multiplayer and, and there's online capabilities and stuff but there was also local and for a game on the 3ds you know that was that was really nice to just kind of all gather in one place um you don't need anything other than maybe an outlet this is <laughs> if uh you know batteries start getting low and team up in groups of four to just go hunt a big monster and then by hunting that monster you'd get parts to you know make yourself even stronger so you could go hunt an even bigger monster so yeah. that you could get more parts to get even stronger and the circle of life yeah exactly so it was just a fun like you know you could have someone who is relatively new to the group come in and you could be like okay we'll just join up and, and stand back we'll just bash a few you know easy monsters for you so that you can get some pieces build some armor and then you can join us on the harder hunts it's very easy to kind of you know the kind of mmo like in that way you know just get yeah, yeah. get people up to speed really fast and but how lovely to do that in a physical space like in your store that's yes. great isn't it yeah it was it was so nice it was just a really nice uh way to get <laughs> to socialize and you know that was and that was how i spent my early 20s i was playing video games but that's but i love that i love that that there still were games and i'm sure there are still games like this they're just they're fewer and further between now even in 2014 that felt like a kind of antiquated thing to essentially have a have a land party inside <laughs> of a game store but um but i'm very thankful for it because i think that was just a, a really fun time for me socially yeah yeah oh you talking about it makes me feel nostalgic even though i wasn't there <laughs> it sounds, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great uh okay kelsey let me go through your your console then so we got uh pokemon crystal animal crossing uh dark stars revolution supernova xenoblade chronicles and monster hunter 4 ultimate that's a pretty cool pretty cool console how are you feeling about it <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it it would keep me Keep me entertained for a pretty long time. Yeah. Okay, we need a name for your console. Um, have you got any thoughts of what we could call this? Mm, um, I think because I I didn't pick any Wonderswan games for this, but, you know, uh, I do love the Wonderswan. I think we should call it the Wonder Goose. Because <laughs> <laughs> I am a, a bit of a silly goose. Oh, that's so. great. The Wonder Goose. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. I love that. The Wonder Swan is such a strange little console, isn't it? But um, great. Was it designed by Gunpei Yokoi? Am I making that up? It was. And yeah, and he was, um, so he had left Nintendo at the time. This was, you know, shortly after the whole Virtual Boy debacle, which is its own whole story. He left Nintendo to start uh, a little design company called Koto um, Laboratories. And they were working with uh, they were making some like little electronic gadgets and stuff, but they started working with Bandai on a console. And it's very, you know, design-wise, it is very um, Gunpei Akoi. It's very much that he has this whole um, like philosophy of lateral thinking with withered technology. Yes, so it's a very yeah. um, that's what he said about the Game Boy. Wasn't exactly. It? Yes, he, it's very. Game they Boy. had loads of really really cheap LCD screens. And yes. It was like, what can we do to sell these? Exactly. Right. So. Um, so it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a cheap console, but that's done very effectively. And the thing I think is so interesting, there's a couple things I think are so interesting about it. Um, he unfortunately uh, got hit by a car and passed away before 
the console came out. But um, the two things I really love about it are that uh, it's designed so that games can be played either horizontally or vertically, and um, developers could take advantage of that and be like, I want a section in my game that is vertical, or, you know, you could have a, like a shoot 'em up on it that had the, you know, the screen oriented that way. But the other thing that was really cool, and this came um, a little bit later in its life, but that it was a very big hotbed in Japan of like the early homebrew scene. Right. So they they actually sold a consumer development kit through this company called Cute that um, that anyone could buy, and you could just develop your own Wonderswan game and put it on a little cartridge. And they held competitions for you know submitting your your game, and uh, they only did it two years because unfortunately the console just didn't last very long. But but. The winners of those uh, competitions those two years got their game published on a full cartridge no and, and released. And I just think that's that's such a cool, you know, this is kind of very early indie scene, kind of pre-indie scene over here at least. Yeah. And uh, just just a really cool way of like letting people into that on a console before uh, before that became an easy thing to do. Yeah. Ah, oh, so cool. Well, okay, with the uh, the Wonder Goose, then we'll have to have horizontal and uh, vertical alignment <laughs> and allow for homebrew games. Exactly. <laughs> um, great. Uh, Kelsey, it's been so good to talk to you. And um, yeah, thank you for sharing your time and your memories. And also, thank you for the work that you're doing, which I know is just going to be seen as very valuable uh, in the future when people are trying to figure out the early decades of the video game industry. So yeah, thank you for all your work. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much to my guest, Kelsey Lewin, the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. And together with her co-director, Frank, and the other volunteers and people who work with the Video Game History Foundation, they are just doing such important work to uh, preserve documents, press releases, pieces of hardware, um, early versions of games, unreleased games, all of these things that are being collected, stored, categorised, scanned, and held in museum exhibits and uh, in a library as well this is this is important work um for anyone who is interested in the early years of, of video game culture and design and development as of course people will be for decades and years to come um you know preserving this stuff is is crucial if if the, these people don't do it, it will be lost forever. And in a hundred years, when historians, researchers, academics, and authors want to find out information, they'll have to rely on uh, you know incomplete archives on the internet or or whatever it is. So um, yeah, this is this is important work. You can read more about the uh, Video Game History Foundation's work by visiting gamehistory.org, uh, and it's goes through their mission their current projects and you can read up on the team and also follow their blog they also have a podcast too you can follow kelsey and her co-director frank safaldi on twitter and they are often doing advocacy and threads on uh, why copyright laws need to be changed and uh, also so doing fundraisers for particular 
prototypes or cartridges or discs that they want to acquire uh, for the foundation and put out into the world and to preserve an archive. Um, See, it's worth following all of these avenues. Really important work. At the start of that conversation, I referenced a New Yorker piece. If you search for uh, the piece, it's titled The Collectors Who Save Video Game History from Oblivion, and it's by Bijan Steven. A wonderful piece, well worth your time, so go and read that as well. Um, Anyway, aside from all of that, it was just wonderful to hear Kelsey's choices, her um, story, how she's wound up in this rather unusual role and her path that led her there and of course her other hat as well as being a co-owner of a of a vintage video game store in Seattle Washington she has obviously as you can hear from that conversation deep and impressive knowledge and um, so it was great to to hear some of that to hear some of those anecdotes and of course Uh, We'll all be looking out for her book on Animal Crossing coming out later this year through Boss Fight Books. You can write to me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com with any thoughts, with any feedback and suggestions for guests. Thank you to those of you who do. I get suggestions for guests all the time through through email, through um, messages on social media and all of that. And uh, yeah, it's really helpful and uh, all goes into a list that I'm compiling and approaching various people. At the moment, just sort of bringing out episodes at least one a week and occasionally I might do two a week depending (laughs) I've got quite a few backed up but uh, they'll definitely be seeing us through to the end of the year so um, yeah but please do keep those suggestions coming you can follow the podcast on twitter at my perfect console with the o's removed or on instagram my perfect console with the o's in place and you can also uh, follow me on twitter at simon parkin Okay, I will be back again next week with a new guest with their five games and with one more perfect console. Until then, have a wonderful week. Goodbye. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.